Welcome to the Monday Morning Phone Call Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Joslin. Every preacher knows when they are teetering on the edge of a topic that will result in receiving a phone call on Monday morning. Instead of backing away from those topics, this podcast exists to work through those polarizing ideas and spark conversation. In each episode, we'll be covering different topics that hopefully we'll be able to address with more nuance and depth than we might be able to in a 30-minute sermon. We'd love for this platform to just be the start of the conversation, and hopefully it sparks more in-depth conversation uh, for you and your family and your friends and your areas of influence. We would love for you to share the podcast and keep the conversation going. Uh, You can engage with us on Twitter at Waterstone News or on Instagram at WaterstoneCC. Also, look for new episodes of the podcast to drop every other Monday morning. Today in the podcast, I am joined by Madison Campbell, our Connections Pastor. Madison received her MDiv from Denver Seminary, is an incredible communicator, and loves facilitating conversations that help people explore topics of faith, theology, and spirituality. Elliot Campbell is also jumping on the podcast today, and he is our student ministry director. Um, Elliot has completed his MDiv at Denver Seminary as well. Um, He's a gifted preacher, has a mind for seeing the intersection of faith and current events, so he brings a lot to the conversation as well this morning. I'm excited they're both joining me. On today's podcast, we cover a topic that most people would rather ignore, hell, heaven, and the afterlife. We talk about the prominent views of hell in the evangelical camp and what those views say about God's character and our eternal destinies. We hope you enjoy the Monday morning phone call. Hey, Elliot Madison, thank you so much for jumping on the Monday morning phone call with me. I especially appreciate your willingness to jump on this conversation uh, because we are talking about hell and the afterlife today. And just so you know, both Nick and Larry bowed out and said they didn't want to be a part of this conversation. So you are the brave ones and uh, really glad you guys are here to jump in the conversation. The, the brave third and fourth chair. But yeah, we'll sorry. I'll, I'll take the third. <laughs> you just you that. The fourth. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's the fourth. That's right. Um, okay, so Elliot Madison, uh, just to start, when you hear the term hell, what immediately comes to your mind? I think my like second grade nightmare of <laughs> the pit of despair uh-huh. from Princess Bride, this place where people are healed only to be tormented. Yes. That is like always my brain consciousness of like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to the pit of despair. Great pop culture reference. Thank you. Princess Bride, good place to start. How about for you, Elliot? Yeah, um, I don't probably know movie references. I've always, I was thinking about this this weekend. Um, it's funny that we, I've always envisioned hell as this really dark place and simultaneously always defined by fire, right. um, which feels pretty counterintuitive. Right. So it's like small flames maybe or like one, one or two lighters. <laughs> Um, but dark it's fire. a dark fire somehow, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, just the connotations that come to mind, that's at least the first image that I think of. Yeah, no, I, I resonate with both of those. And I, I feel like the images I always have are something around Dante's Inferno, right, mm-hmm. of like the different layers of hell and the different things that are going on there and levels of punishment and disaster for certain people. Um, but it's just, it's definitely a place that does not appeal to anyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so... In this conversation about hell, I think there's a a lot of information out there. There's a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of ideas. Most of it, I would argue, is actually influenced by pop culture and not Mm. by what we find in scripture. Um, But for you guys, why is it important to have a conversation on hell? Yeah, I would say hell is one of those topics that I think is 
um, widely fam- or familiar to a wide swath of people, right? So true. Um, but actual uh, clear thoughts or where their thoughts might have originated from, whether it's kind of like you said, pop culture or scripture or some syncretism between the two, which is probably the most likely option. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of um, clarity around the concept of hell, especially Christian hell. Yeah. So, uh, so I would say a wide familiarity and probably ignorance as mm-hmm. well on the topic. So yeah, it's an important one. Yeah, I think uh, we are spiritual beings, so we aren't just made up of a body. We have a soul, and when our bodies die, begs the question, what happens to our souls? And it's definitely not a topic that we typically talk about, but I think it's still important if if we are understanding that we are spiritual beings. So yeah, I think that's really important, and and I think along those lines. Um, we tend to talk about hell as a theological idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and for many people, I think it's actually a very personal reality, right? So they know someone that died that they think might be in hell, or they're wrestling through the idea of, of what does that mean for this person I know um, that's no longer with us, what happened to them? And so it's not just this abstract concept, but it, it touches people in a very, very personal place, someone that they've cared about, that they've lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I honestly think there can be a decent amount of PTSD around the idea of mm-hmm. hell and how, at least for me, how it was presented to me as a child, uh, it was always fear mongering and like, this is a place you don't want to go and so do whatever you can to get out of that. And that was mm-hmm. the starting place for the conversation, which I don't know is always helpful. Um, yeah, I think I think there can be two extremes with hell, kind of like you said. Um, those who fear it and it's a motivator, whether in the positive or negative direction, whatever that produces and, and then those who trivialize it but i yeah. think that's true in the christian church as well right so, so you know this but paul um c.s lewis wrote that the enemy wants us to either trivialize him and think of uh little girls on halloween with red horns on their head or completely um fear the enemy and mm. feel totally helpless or hopeless mm-hmm. in front of any spiritual darkness as christians and he says we should be in the middle and i think the same relates to hell that it, it should bring about some healthy urgency but also um we need to be careful that like you said you don't get ptsd from <laughs> flanograms as a kid or flanographs <laughs> whatever they're called so so true yeah so all right i think when we're talking about hell uh, I believe the place to start the conversation is what is the problem that hell is trying to solve? Um, it's interesting. I think there's so much, again, in pop culture and, and the way that people perceive Christians that they think Christians are this uh, group of people that can't wait to send people to hell and that they want um, people that they disagree with or don't like to be sent to hell. It's this punitive idea. Um, that's kind of the perception that our, our culture has oftentimes that we're the judgmental religion. And other religions like Buddhism or Hinduism, they have this kind of idea of nirvana and that everyone ends up uh, in heaven at some point. But that's actually not accurate depiction of those religions. In fact, I would argue that um, every religion in one way or another has some sort of idea of a hell or of a, a place of punishment and judgment. And so if that's the case, if every religion has this idea of, of hell in the afterlife, of a place of punishment or judgment, why do you guys think that is? And why do you think that's so important to, to start the conversation there about what that problem is that, that all these religions think hell is an important idea? Yeah. That's a, a great question. I think we as humans have a, a sense and a feeling of injustice. Uh, we can tell when someone has wronged us or wronged the world, and that begs the question, well, 
what what do we do about that? Is there something that happens that accounts for the injustice that has been done, particularly for cases where we haven't seen justice done in mm, that moment? Right. Uh, and, and so we continue to ask, well, is there something there that satisfies that? What, what happens to injustice? Absolutely. Yeah, because I think the moment um, there are no consequences for evil actions, the universe immediately begins to lose any sort of, mm-hmm. sort of moral foothold um, that we can grasp a hold of. And all of us have this internal um, and innate desire for justice and for wrong actions to be righted, and we long for that. Um, and so I, I think you're right. In, in many ways, religions are trying to solve the problem of how that actually comes to pass because mm-hmm. we live in a state where many times just injustice is not punished and, and it goes um, unpunished. And so if there is some sort of... of moral universe or, or being behind created order, then there has to be a sense of justice that we can all experience at some point. If it's not in this life, then the afterlife potentially. So Elliot, you have thoughts? Yeah, I think um, it's you can emotionally like prove this pretty easily. Of, um, mm. I think what makes me feel uh, uneasy about hell is um, uh, the people I know who from a Christian perspective or maybe even any religious perspective... Um, uh, barring maybe like Hinduism, but uh, that would, um, according to Christian theology, land in hell. And that mm. it makes me squirmish. Yeah. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, on the other hand, I think then I think, you know, about world leaders like uh, sure. Assad, right, yeah. in the Middle East and using chemical weapons on their own people and children. All of a sudden there's this like hoorah, like I'm hell's biggest cheerleader, mm-hmm. right? And I'm like, yes, sure. I'm so glad that there is some sort of judgment, some sort of justice um, that if human arms and hands or NATO or world powers can't reach, God can reach on the last day. So it, it, um, we very quickly see, I think, the need for justice when right. we think about those who we want to be um, reckoned with justice, you know, or punished. And yet when we think about those who are decent, good people, but mm-hmm. potentially don't don't qualify from a Christian textbook perspective, um, that's when I think I become really uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. There's that mm-hmm. tension we live with in that when we think, like you said, of world leaders like a Hitler, it's really hard to imagine Hitler in heaven with us. Like if Hitler is in heaven with me, I don't know that that place is heaven. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know that yeah. that can yeah. be paradise. Uh-huh. Um, and yet on the other hand, if the people I love and that I care about and that I know intimately aren't in heaven with me, then I also don't know if that's paradise. And so there's this tension morally that I think, um, and and just at a gut level, that makes us really uncomfortable about this conversation. I think it's important to be honest about that because I think so many times people have had this view, like I have to believe in eternal conscious torment and that most people that have ever been born in the history of the world are going there or I'm not a Christian. Mm. And that is is a slippery slope and and I think a dangerous place to be in existence. Um, and so there's actually like much more room to have conversation about what the nature of hell is and what that says about God's nature and his character and what he's like. Um, yeah, I know we'll get into this in a little bit, but it's interesting to me to see how um, we've, dr- we've drawn lines of what's orthodox on a view of hell and what's not. Right. Um, and so, you know, in over hundreds of years, especially the last couple hundreds, people have said, that's what you think about hell. You're not a Christian, right? And it can still be like easily, you know, argued in Scripture and within sure. the Orthodox kind of, um, you know, guardrails. I would say, um, but yeah, you're right. People um, they can feel strongly if you uh, come to any other conclusion rather than complete eternal conscious torment. You yeah. Know, so. 
Yeah. Would you guys say, and this this is maybe a bigger question than we can really answer, but would you say that, you know, at Waterstone, we talk a lot about how there's a central core doctrine that we, we all say we have to agree on. And then there's secondary doctrine that there's room to disagree. So mm-hmm. in the first podcast, we talked about origins. There's a lot of room in that conversation for people to believe, you know, literal seven day creation, old earth creation, all the way to theistic evolution. Like we, we mm-hmm. would run the gamut. Do you think there's that much breadth with the conversation on hell or that we do have to hold to one particular view to be orthodox? That is a very tough question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm putting me on the spot. I I think, I I think there is room of non-essential belief Mm. within our orthodox spectrum of hell. Uh, I think some of the questions we do have to ask ourselves are what, what does our belief in hell say about Jesus work mm. and his life and death so and resurrection. And, um, it, does it trivialize that or does it bring that to light and mm. really recognize what, what the significance and meaning of that is? Uh, but I don't think that we have figured out mm-hmm. hell. And, and so I think there is grace and there is room for movement within that because scripture says a lot of things and it is not incredibly clear and yeah. not easy to figure out. So, yeah. And it's also, you know, it, it's not something any of us have experienced. And so it's, yeah. it's yeah. at best, a lot of it is is guesswork based on the truth we find in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, but it even seems like at times from my vantage point that views of hell are being worked out as Scripture is being written. And mm-hmm. so you have in the Old Testament this idea of Sheol, and mm-hmm. it does not look... Um, very reminiscent of some of the depictions of hell that you see in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like there's this forming theology that's happening that Scripture is revealing over time. Um, and so there there seems to be at least a, a conversation to be had about this and what Scripture says. So Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. I think, um, uh, you know, you talked about origins in your podcast with Nick last week of, um, I think when it's behind us, quite literally, I mean, at the end of the day, like, what I think, I'll never prove right or wrong from my lived experience about origins right. um, and how you know we came to be. Um, whereas I think hell is the future, and mm-hmm. also it um, impacts today and and our yeah, so like beliefs. Um, and so, yeah. So I think there's a lot. More, there is appropriately more weight on someone's view of hell. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's interesting is once you try to split hairs and decide what's orthodox. In other words, what's within the boundaries of Christian faith, and then at what point do you step out with your yeah, view of hell? You know? Sure. Which maybe that's a, a good place to, to kind of take that conversation now, mm-hmm. is what would we consider orthodox? What would Waterstone uh, believe is orthodox? What is that kind of uh, panorama view of hell? And so we're going to start by just talking about a few different views of hell. And I would say that there are, are three primary views of hell that are, are kind of widely talked about um, in, in theology today. Uh, the first we're going to refer to as eternal conscious torment, but it's the idea uh, that hell is a literal place um, that's created by God for people who sin and rebel and commit evil actions. Um, and then I'd say the second uh, idea about hell or, or view of hell is an idea of annihilationism. And so it's the idea that when someone dies, um, they if they don't end up in heaven, um, for lack of a better term, the good place, then they <laughs> uh, cease to exist. And that rather than being tormented for eternity, um, their choice to reject Jesus uh, has an eternal consequence, um, but it's not torment, it's 
ceasing to exist. And then the final view is, is an idea that's been talked about a lot over the last few years, but Christian universalism and the idea that at some point all people are saved and brought back to redemption. And so when you guys hear those, let's start with the eternal conscious torment. What are some things that come to mind? What are things that you've heard, that you've read, that you believe? Um, let's just start there and, and yeah, what we do with that view of hell, eternal conscious torment. Yeah, that so... Um you know, that really is a traditional view, right? So we just have spelt it out now that multiple other views have gained in like, <laughs> yeah. popularity. Um, uh, but it is. It's kind of the uh, traditional view that there's everlasting life or everlasting torment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, you know, once you once you start to pair that with annihilationism, um, that's where I think you get some interesting um, uh tension because you're reading the same passages and you can make solid arguments from scripture for both. Sure. Um, So what, maybe let's start there. What what does scripture say about the eternal conscious torment view? What is, what are some scripture passages that you guys have seen or that, um, yeah, that uphold that view in your eyes? Yeah. So it's funny in the old Testament, Isaiah 66, um, the last chapter, right? Of Isaiah, the last verses 22 to 24. Um, it talks about worms that live forever and fire that live forever that are tormenting and torturing Mm -hmm. these people. Um, so, and we'll probably get there, but with annihilationism, a lot of times the, the thrust or one of the points of strongest argument against eternal conscious torment is the idea that the new Testament word for everlasting doesn't literally refer to, um, uh, length, but more right. location, right? It's an age. And so uh, I think those who hold to kind of a eternal conscious torment, the traditional view would say, we agree with that, but you can prove, or you can argue at least, um, an ongoing sort of everlasting um, from the Old Testament mm-hmm. using Isaiah uh, 66, 22, 24, Daniel 12, 2 to 3. Um, and the word there is, uh, Olam, Madison, you would know that better than I am, and probably better than Paul, too, because um, you're so good. Madison is definitely the smartest person on this podcast. We should just no. start there. Um, so, uh, but but really that connotes um, uh, a period of unending duration. And so mm-hmm. they would go to the Old Testament first and then look at Jesus' words in the New Testament, Matthew um, 25 and so on, so... And I think we we hear imagery of weeping and gnashing of teeth continually throughout mm-hmm. the New Testament, and and that is describing that place where we have interpreted as this place of eternal conscious torment, um, things like kill and destroy, and and that fire that consumes without ever being extinguished. These images are where we've gotten eternal conscious torment from, sure. um, and you'll see that throughout the New Testament. So yeah. And that, just to go back to something you said real quick, Elliot, you mentioned the traditional view of hell. And I, I would say that's true for evangelical circles, which is obviously the yeah. circles we run in, that that's kind of the, the quote-unquote traditional view. Um, there has, within evangelical circles and others, been a broader conversation about what, what hell looks like and considered orthodox. So that's another thing we I think we just need to preface this conversation is we're really trying to come at it from a, a viewpoint of how Waterstone, um, as an evangelical mm-hmm. community, mm-hmm. sees scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in those camps, uh, traditionally, eternal, eternal conscious torment has been uh, the view upheld as the, the view that we need to have on hell. I would say um, it's the one that, that has come under the most attack recently that, to be honest, is the most uncomfortable for most mm-hmm. of us because, yeah, okay, Hitler in hell um, where he's tormented forever, I can probably get behind that idea. Um, it still is, is maybe difficult at times, but my friend who lied and 
ends up in hell, is that really deserving, uh, you know, a momentary mistake, a momentary sin, is that worth an eternity of conscious torment? And so that's kind of where the, I think there's been some pushback is morally, it doesn't quite seem to uh, to solve that sense of justice that we talked about earlier. So what would you guys say to, to that view or that question that people might have? Um, yeah, in regards to eternal, eternal conscious torment. I think a question I would just ask is, are we coming from a stance where we believe that we deserve heaven mm-hmm. and that everyone has merited that? Mm-hmm. Uh, in which case, yes, that does seem completely out of whack. Mm-hmm. If someone who has lied or, or let's say they haven't ever heard about Jesus Christ, mm, right? right? The, the, some of the most controversial instances of someone possibly going to hell, if we believe that everyone deserves that place, well, then absolutely that seems out of whack. But if we believe, I think that we are all sinful, fallen out of the place of being able to redeem ourselves, it means that we probably don't deserve heaven and therefore are deserving of something else. And so that doesn't satisfy everything, Mm. but I think we have to evaluate what our core belief in what we deserve is. Um, And that at least begins a conversation. I don't think that that's the end point, but it's, it's a place to to reflect on self mm-hmm. first, I think, instead of accusing God of, of sure. an immoral injustice. Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes when we, we have a conversation uh, around hell, we, we begin in this place with uh, ECT of thinking, well, can God be good if this is what hell is? And that's mm-hmm. the, the question that often comes to mind. Um, we don't often start with the question of, of is God good if there isn't? judgment or punishment mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Um, evil and for, for actions, right? So if, let's say, um, a Hitler is forgiven and everything is redeemed and God brings him, is that actually good? And so there's, again, there's just this incredible tension that we live with of, of nothing about this just sits right and, and solves it completely, but we do have to to, as we reflect on these different views, think in terms of, of what does it say about God and what are our beliefs about Him and about humanity. And I think you bring up a great point, Madison. Do we start with the assumption that that we're fallen um, and that we are are broken and that we have um, and not just broken that that kind of tends to minimize it, but that we have actually rebelled against a good and gracious God and that we have chosen. Um, to essentially dismiss, reject, and rebel against his goodness. And that plays a, a huge role in this conversation as well. Um, Denny Burke in the Four Views on Hell, um, I think second ed- edition, he kind of argues for the ECT. Mm-hmm. And um, he uses this argument where he says, imagine you're walking into a park and you see a man sitting on a bench and he's pulling limb by limb uh, the like um, appendages off of a grasshopper. Oh, he yeah. says, you're probably going to look at that guy and think, that guy's nuts. I'm mm-hmm. going to keep going on my way. So then you come back the next day and he's pulling limb by limb like a squirrel apart. And you're like, okay, that really bothers me. Sure, right? yeah. But I'm still not going to mess with this guy because he's crazy. <laughs> he's sitting in a park bench and he's pulling a squirrel's arms off. He said, you come back the third day and he's doing it to a baby and all of us are trying to. And all of a sudden, you will risk your entire life to intercede. Yeah. And the argument that he makes there is, who we sin against, who we do wrong to, uh, determines the the correct response mm-hmm. um, or to the degree to which the response should be intense. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I agree with this logic, but then he jumps to saying, 
when we think about eternal conscious torment, we might think, well, that's way too much mm-hmm. um, for any person. And, and I honestly, I sympathize with that sure, sense yeah. very much. But he says, we have to keep in mind who the wrong is against. Yeah. Um, what I have seen, though, is, um, and all of us went to Denver Seminary, and we, have, we, we know that, uh, this type of character or trope, that there is a flippancy people speak about. Mm, yes. Um, and uh, it's almost as though they enjoy taking strong stances. Right. Um, uh, concept like double predestination, right. right? Which I don't think Waterstone has ever even mumbled in his church. Yeah. But it's the idea that God predestines those going to heaven, obviously, right. and those going to hell. And right. It's a whole other thing. But you know, you talk to people, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I believe in that." And I think pastorally, I have to pause even in this conversation, recognize. Um, that the, I think the two primary alternatives that Protestants have held to historically and to um, eternal conscious torment are pastoral felt needs that are legitimate. Mm-hmm. We still have to ground ourselves in the text. Sure. Um, but at the very least, if we hold this perspective, you should recognize it. It's harsh. Yeah. Um, and it should make you uncomfortable. I don't right. think mm-hmm. God's goal for us is to just be accepting of doctrine of hell one way or another. Absolutely. Yeah. There should be no joy if you mm-hmm. hold to the eternal conscious torment. That even for, for someone like uh, a Hitler, I keep bringing that example up, but, but there should not be joy that that is his destiny. And so many times that is the approach Christians have is this like retributive justice, this punitive justice of of God doling out punishment against our enemies, um, and that's not necessarily the intent I think of God's yeah. heart behind hell and, and punishment. It is a sense of justice, but it, it's less about the punishment and and tormenting, and more about the free will choice that people make to reject His goodness um, and God respecting that choice. Mm-hmm. When you have this conversation, and, and I keep going back to it, but God's goodness. Is, is at the center of this, is God good if he forces us all to love him? And that, you know, no place would we say if someone forces themselves upon you, is that good? We, yeah. we need the freedom to choose to love. And so that has to, to kind of color some of this conversation, but it doesn't mean that we rejoice when people make that, that choice um, to reject God. Um, yeah. So I think we have to start there. And then I think maybe along those lines, I'd love to talk about um, eternal conscious torment in light of annihilationism. Because I think, mm-hmm. like you said, Elliot, they use a lot of the same texts. Um, they have a, a very different way of viewing what those texts are saying. And so can we maybe just have a, a conversation there about those two views? Again, annihilationism is the idea that when you die, uh, you cease to exist, and that um, that is the punishment. The choice you have made is to to be separated from God eternally, uh, but it's an eternal death and an eternal um, yeah lack of existence. Would some annihilationists though say that there's a period of time that you are in some sort of torment? It's true. And then, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think for the most part the view would say that um, when when we die presently while we're waiting for the, the final judgment or for the Lord's day when he returns, um, those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ are in some sort of, of paradise or, or um, existence in heaven uh, and then those who have rejected Christ are in some sort of, of judgment punitive place um, currently. And yeah. so, so yeah, so there is that view uh, that there's a, um, a temporary place that we're held until uh, the day of Christ's return. Yeah. 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 So I think that's a fair point. Yeah. I think um, one of the things annihilationism, I mean, this isn't scriptural, but that it has a strong argument for, I think, is the alternative is, um, you know, really only universalism has any um, meaning beyond just a punitive 
uh, purpose mm-hmm. in hell, right? Yeah, right? Annihilationism and um, eternal conscious torment both just basically say it can't be restorative. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be punitive because there's nothing else. That's your judgment. That's your, you know, you're condemned to that. Yeah. Um, I think the difference to those annihilationists would say, how can we be in hell knowing that the ones we've loved are currently and actively being and this is just so where you start talking about hell after a while and you're like this is really bizarre stuff that I'm saying I believe <laughs> yeah um, right so yeah. but but how can we, kind of to your point you're like how can we be in heaven and know that those we care about are in hell for eternity yeah, as well right um, and I also think you know that that's where really uh, they're right to point out that we've translated from Greek into English everlasting mm-hmm. and when we hear everlasting especially in you know uh, 21st century we're thinking uh, a period of time. The old, the New Testament author who used that was almost always thinking uh, more of a uh, location, the yeah. new age, mm-hmm. as opposed to length. So yeah, no, I think that's that's a, a fair point. And a lot of the verses people reference um, right now. So I'll, I'll just go through a couple um, and get some of your thoughts. But Matthew twenty five is often the one uh, that's brought up where uh, Jesus says that they'll separate the sheep from the goats, um, and that the the sheep are those uh, who have helped those who are in need, the hungry, the sick, the poor, the foreigner, um, and they will be welcomed into a kingdom that was prepared from them from the foundation the world. And then the goats, um, the wicked, they're the ones who have refused to help the needy. And so they are sent to eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Um, and at first blush, uh, I think that sounds like the, the popular view of hell. Um, but when you dive a little bit deeper into some of the language there, um, you have to, to decipher what is Jesus saying about eternal life and eternal punishment? Um, is it eternal pleasure and eternal pain? Or is it life and death? And is he talking about torture um, or this idea of, of a fire that burns, consumes, and then, um, yeah, consumes into mm-hmm. to non-existence? And so th- that's, that's the argument that an annihilationist would make is that Jesus, oftentimes when he refers to death, uh, it's an eternal death. And he doesn't use the words for torture. Um, he uses words like destruction. Um, and there's an eternal aspect to that. And so that's where, where the view would come in. Thoughts, reactions to some of those? Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, the, the, I think again, annihilationists, the strongest thing they usually hit is, um, uh, that the word everlasting doesn't necessarily mean forever. Right. right? Um, or it means, I'd say that they say it means forever, um, but it, that it doesn't mean like torment or the destruction is is permanent, um, but that it's not an ongoing consciousness. Does that make sense? That yeah, mm-hmm. it does. Well, so then, what I have read by people defending annihilation annihilationism is the idea that it doesn't mean forever. Um, that it specifically means like an an age, a period. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually that's the slip that they use to say, therefore, these verses don't support um, eternal conscious torment. Personally, mm, yeah. Gotcha. The other, the rebuttal that I've heard is that, um, because oftentimes they'll point out the word destroy um, or destruction. Um, in Greek, it's olatheos. Again, I don't know. That's, <laughs> I'm sure that's not the correct way to say it. I can tell you how to spell it. Um, but, uh, but a lot of times where um, eternal conscious torment group will kind of respond back is that that word doesn't necessarily mean total destruction of body mm-hmm. and of um, soul. Mm-hmm. That it's more like I say, well, I, you know, I forgot to put oil in my car and it had a leak and so I destroyed the engine. Like it mm-hmm. still exists. It's just ruined. Mm-hmm. Um, it's lost. Um, yeah, anyway. 
I think the other pushback that an eternal conscious torment views would take on this, and I was reading an article by Jay Packer about the, the eternal fire, mm. and the question came up of, well, how does it eternally burn if there is no fodder mm. for the fire? Mm-hmm. And so just a, a logical inconsistency of how does fire burn mm-hmm. when there is nothing to be burned, sure. which is really like... Yeah, it's dark. Oh, I don't... Yeah, yeah. It's a dark thought, uh, but that was one of his pushbacks to this idea of annihilationism is you can't have one without the other. You can't have fire without. Sure. And then I think that, yeah, I've heard that argument from Packer too. I think Stott, um, it it may not be Stott, so don't quote me on that, but I think his view is uh, he would kind of rebuttal that a lot of it is apocalyptic language. And Mm -hmm. so kind of what Elliot said earlier of, how can it be a dark place that's full of fire? And so there's some sort of imagery that, that's going on that it's hard to to necessarily decipher exactly um, what is this meaning. And even, you know, I talked about the progression of some of the, the views on this. Jesus talks about hell in a very different way than even John does in Revelation, where I would say in, in Revelation, the view John presents is more of an eternal conscious torment. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus, in, in my views tends to, to lean, in, in my opinion, more towards that idea of destruction, even the way he talks about, you know, the, the chaff being burned up and consumed. It, mm-hmm. At that point, it, it's burnt and it's it's no it's more. Done. It's done. It's not burning forever. And so there's just, there is a lot of, um, you know, conversation, I think, that, that's worth having in this. The the other thing I would say along this these lines is, I think one important piece for us to remember about what Jesus says about hell is that... Um, in my understanding, at least, every time he brings up the idea of, of hell or Gehenna, it's always in the context of constructing ethical consciousness. So he's teaching people how they should behave while they're living. Um, so like you have the, the story of Lazarus, right, and, um, and, and his death, and he goes to heaven because God had mercy on him, but the rich man uh, goes to hell. That parable is not necessarily trying to teach us what to view on hell. It's trying to teach us how we should live in this life. And so that complicates the situation a little bit in my view is that that I don't know that we can point at any one particular teaching of Jesus and say he was trying to tell us exactly what hell is. Um, I think there are clues we can pull from that. Um, but we have to keep in mind that most of his conversation around it is happening in the context of ethical behavior and how we should live yeah. while we're living. I, I would agree. I, I think... Um, the reality is it's really actually disappointing for those who want to know exactly what hell looks like. Yeah, I think fair. we are super interested in the afterlife. I think Christ is less interested in us having a full picture and more knowing what we need to know, Yeah, um, which is that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, right? That's um, a good point. But, uh, yeah, but I think anytime you go, you know, you want to know about the Satan and Lucifer and how that ended up happening, right? It's <laughs> right. like, I don't know that God is like, you know, I want to make sure they know about right. like, Lucifer's background. It's like, yeah. no, no, he's not really concerned with that. The other thing it says, you start seeing some of the ridiculousness of this argument right. when you have some of the greatest scholars of <laughs> yes. like, you know, the last hundred years. Right. One says, J.I. Packer says, well, how can things burn forever right. if there's nothing to burn? And it's like, well, and then, you know, another says, well, but but the chaff burns up completely. And it, at some point, <laughs> you're like, it sounds like schoolboys right. who are just saying, like, watch how fast I can run. And, um, yeah, and, and it feels as though, like, you're getting away from 
um, stepping back from the text and looking at it as a whole. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a that's a great point, Elliot, because what we have to recognize in this conversation is systematic theology can only get us so far. Mm-hmm. Like there's only so much we can build a theology around the text. We can absolutely find truth and we can find conviction there. Um, but the moment we start stepping away to to fill in some of the puzzle pieces outside of what scripture has revealed, then we're really dealing with conjecture and we need to be very humble in those spaces about what we we hold on to and what we say, this is definitively what Jesus is saying. Because there are great minds who have been wrestling with this for a long time. Um, C.S. Lewis had had views that most evangelicals today would say, I, I don't know that that's orthodox. And, right? and so there's just a, a lot of, of conversation to be had around that. Before we move into universalism, one uh, last thing that I think has to be talked about in regards to these two views of, of eternal conscious torment and annihilationism is the idea of uh, Jesus and Gehenna. Um, mm-hmm. So oftentimes when this conversation, people bring up the point that Jesus is referring to um, a place, uh, a literal place that existed outside of Jerusalem uh, called Gehenna, and that's the word he uses for hell predominantly. In fact, in the New Testament, um, there's three words that are primarily used for hell. One is Gehenna, uh, one is Hades, and one is Tardis, and those are each translated as hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a little nuance that we need to have around that. So what this idea of Gehenna comes up all the time. I think it's important for our, our listeners to know what is... Uh, Gehenna, and what is Jesus referring to when he says that? Thoughts on that? I think we've often talked about Gehenna as a dump where people can be tortured, where all the bad or dark things of the city kind of leave the central part, mm-hmm. go to the outskirts where things are more hidden, but also we, you just know that that is the place that is associated with all the immorality right. of the known world or of your current reality. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty representative of a of a bad place at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, I know from some of my reading that it's uh, it's also calling back to the the Valley of Himon, mm-hmm. um, which was a place that that kings and priests uh, when they were. Um, in the times of the prophets, when they were rejecting God, they were actually doing like child sacrifice there. And it was a place of complete like immorality and rejection. And and it was known as a place of judgment and evil. Um, and so that was a, a reference that, that Jesus, as soon as he says Gehenna, everybody immediately has that image of, in their mind of, of just absolute evil and rejection of, of the ways of God. Um, what's interesting is as I was kind of studying for this, I've often heard that in Jesus' day, Gehenna was a, a continually like eternal burning place. And what I actually found, I've, I've actually used that in sermons before, so this mm-hmm. was like new to me, but um, several scholars are contending that that was not what Gehenna was in Jesus' day, that there's actually very little archaeological evidence that Gehenna was in Jesus' day, a trash dump that was burning um, forever. They actually have the view that it was just a reference to this place of judgment mm-hmm. and evil. And by Jesus' day, it had actually begun to have more of an apocalyptic post-life meaning and, mm-hmm. and something representative of hell. So it's important to know that that the translation choosing to the translators choosing to use hell for Gehenna is actually not that off base. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think from from what what I've read. Can I ask you why, why do you think Jesus uses Gehenna? But is it to say, hey, this is a literal place you know, he's just speaking to his audience, or is it because there are co- connotations with that that people would carry over? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I th- from what I've kind of studied, I think it's both. I think it's a both. Mm-hmm. So I think it's this image that immediately when when you hear that word, like certain places in our context have connotations, right? You hear the words Las Vegas, and you immediately have images that come to mind about what that place is. Cheap buffets primarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's a, <laughs> that's a safe one. This is a family podcast. Yeah. So, um, but 
but yeah, so Gehenna would have been that for those people. They would have immediately had all of these images um, about the the evil that had taken place in their history. Mm-hmm. But at that point, it had also become representative for God's judgment and the punishment against those types of, of evil. And so it's kind of a both and. And I think that's important to remember, too, that, that there is an element Jesus is using symbolic language to communicate a deep truth. And we do that all the time in our sermons and in our yeah. teachings and our conversations. Um, and so, again... Maybe leaves it a little grayer than people would like, but... Um. I think that also follows suit for all apocalyptic literature that we see throughout scripture. It is always full of imagery. Yes. That is not exactly what it looks like when you first see it. And Absolutely. so I, I think if it is, if it has taken on an apocalyptic nature, that makes total sense when yep. we look at the rest of scripture. Yeah. I, and this kind of goes back to, this is a bigger question about like exegesis. Yeah. I think we can do that with so many passages, mm. right? It's like the preacher that wants to preach through a chapter of the Bible or a book of the Bible, but takes one or two verses at a time. And um, and I sometimes I don't think, I mean, I, I we see chiasms in scripture and all this right. stuff. Sometimes I think, no, what if Paul was literally just writing a letter? Right. Uh, <laughs> and bet. what he's trying to say is like, don't sleep with other people in the church if you're married. And right. Give to the church and to the one guy that's messing up, go have a talk conversation with him. If he doesn't repent, let him go do his thing. Like, right. As opposed to, you know, this specific word has these many. And so I think we can do that with hell too. Yeah, Again, absolutely. I just don't think God is that interested. And I think I think he wants us to know hell exists. Right. And that there will be those who go to hell and there will be those who don't um, mm-hmm. and because of his grace, not because of their doing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so. Yeah, no, that's great. And um, so we're, we're probably getting close to time when we need to wrap up, but I do think we have to have a, a conversation about universalism as well, because mm-hmm. it's uh, a conversation that I think is gaining a lot more traction. It, it was something that uh, used to be associated with uh, heresy and, and liberalism and, and, you know, outside of the realm of orthodoxy. It feels like there's been some movement in um, recent years of, of theologians trying to pull that into more of an orthodox view. So um, what do you think about universalism? What have you heard? What kind of conversations you've had? What do we do with with that term? I'm, I'm going to jump in. because yeah, I do it. <laughs> Disclaimer, I, I do not believe in Christian universalism, but it is comically um, uh, like free-flowing. It, it, I love it because um, it's, it is comical how there is a strong belief in uh, literal hell, um, in uh, Jesus Christ being the only way to God the Father, um, and that after death, those who don't believe in Jesus go to hell. So it's it's almost hard to argue with because yeah. so all of far. all of those views that you just mentioned uh, are within the the term universalism. They're within the bounds of belief Ex- about universalism. Yes. Oh, yeah. sorry. Exactly. Yes. So Christian universalism. Um, the the difference is that um, a universalist would argue, Christian universalist would argue that. After a period of time, the fire refines us, um, and then we are able to join God and the rest of the saints in heaven. Um, and, and honestly, from just a 21st century pastoral you know, uh, thought, well, yes, it's nice because punishment has a purpose. It's not mm-hmm. just punitive. It's actually restorative. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, point to like Proverbs 17.3 that says the, uh, the crucible is for silver and um, the fire for gold, this idea of like purifying. Right. That's a biblical theme. And yet, it is extremely hard to back up with what Jesus sends, right. seems to say, or the urgency that the disciples felt, right. or their willingness to give their life for people who would ultimately just end up in heaven anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And they they love Christian Universalists, the argument, they love the verses that say, just as Adam sinned for all men, so Christ died to save all, and all these all right. they can find in yep. Scripture. So, um, but I do think it's gaining traction. Mm-hmm. Um, I, sh- I shared with you guys. I think I have a friend whose um, brother recently passed away. He is suicide, and um, uh, was not uh, in any sort of faith community or had any belief. And my friend, who's been um, you know worked in the church for a long time, now all of a sudden this idea, and rightly so, if that's your brother. Um, changes its um, form and you start to look at it twice um, because there's a real pastoral need that it seems to answer. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's actually um, there in scripture is the issue. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Elliot, you did a fantastic job summarizing Christian universalism. Uh, I don't have much to add. I think my, my question then is what is this life for? Mm. It, kind of what you were saying with the disciples. If there is a sense of urgency, if mm. we are, if we've received the great commission to teach everyone and and go and baptize and make disciples of all nations, then it it seems to contradict that urgency or the specific action toward mm. Christ. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't believe that Jesus is the only way. Uh, but it it does make me wonder. Well, then why does it matter? now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I, that would be my question is what, what is the significance here? Is it that we get to understand and, and taste and see that the Lord is good that much sooner? Or is there something else going on? Um, That's a great point. And I think it actually, what both of you are saying ties back to, I think it was Elliot who, who brought this up earlier, but um, oh no, it's Madison. Sorry. But what does the cross accomplish? What mm-hmm. does the death mm-hmm. of Jesus accomplish? Mm-hmm. And when you start moving into the conversation about universalism, I think you actually become one step removed from from what scripture says about hell. Mm-hmm. And you're really having a conversation about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so, mm-hmm. like you said, Elliot, there are people who would reference the verses of Christ died for all or to redeem all, or you know, John three sixteen for Christ God so loved the world yeah. that he sent his only son. And so there there's this uh, cosmic idea to this salvation that Christ can bring. Um, and it is important to note that, that we're, um, we're not trying to straw man this argument. Mm-hmm. There, there are intellectual people who hold to this view that it's based on how they see scripture. Um, I think it's fascinating that in uh, the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, in the last battle, uh, C.S. Lewis has a person who represents uh, Muslim belief entering into to Aslan's heaven. And so mm-hmm. there's, um, there's, there is a, a widespread um, conversation taking place. Um, but I do think when you get to universalism, that conversation begins to move a little bit more to what did Christ accomplish in his mm-hmm. death mm-hmm. and what does um, salvation for all mean? And that's probably a, a whole nother podcast that we would have to have uh, at a different time about mm-hmm. that conversation. So any last thoughts uh, you would want the listeners to know about this conversation? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think I would just say hold it loosely. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the existence of how what Jesus says is clear, how it all plays out is something I hold loosely. And, I, and yet I do think it should be a motivator for us mm-hmm. as Christians. Absolutely. It really should. Yeah. So, but yeah. That's great. Yeah, similarly, I would just say hell is a sobering reality, mm-hmm. if it is reality, and it is one that we shouldn't rejoice in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it is one that should be that motivator. It should be a place where we begin to evaluate not only ourselves, but our relationships and, and what we are doing with our faith right, right now. Because if it is that significant 
to us, then then it should be significant in the way that we communicate it, whether that's through action or, or word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think it should be a place where we begin to evaluate what does our life look like right now and what are we doing yeah. um, in light of the fact really that so. Uh, along the lines of, of what both of you just said, um, John Newton, uh, a famous um, Christian who he was a slave trader and then repented, um, but he's the one who composed the, the hymn Amazing Grace. He once wrote that, if I ever reach heaven, uh, I expect to find three wonders there. First, I expect to meet someone I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some that I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all to find myself there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that is is a, the spirit of humility that we should have with this, mm-hmm. is that ultimately uh, it is conjecture. There's truth and conviction that we can find in mm-hmm. Scripture. Um, but if, if, yeah, if we can have that view um, uh, of God's heart, then I think that'll steer us in the right direction as we kind of further this conversation. Thanks for listening to the Monday Morning Phone Call Podcast. We hope that this show will spark conversation and that you'll share this episode with a friend. Join us on Instagram or Twitter to continue the conversation and share your thoughts and opinions with us. This podcast was hosted by me, Paul Joslin, and today's show was edited and mixed by Phil Nelson, produced by Emily Kloss, and the graphic was designed by Lane Gerkink. Special thanks to Elliot and Madison for joining us and sharing their expertise on this challenging topic. We'll be back uh, with another episode in two weeks. Thanks. Thanks.